umgoblue.com by fans for fans since 1999 hello welcome to this edition of the umgoblue.com podcast this is phil callahan along with clint derringer and as we head into fall camp there's lots to talk about with the michigan wolverines one of the themes coming from the coaches and the players is that the new offensive philosophy is PSP, physical, smart, and precise. And I think all Michigan fans would love to see a team that embodies those, uh, those ideas. So, Clint, what are you really looking for as a big change as this team heads into the fall camp? Well, offensively, specifically, I think we want to see uh, a, a more crisp running attack, right? I, I think that we we want to see uh, success on early downs on the in the running game, especially since the coaching staff has made it a point of emphasis in their media availability that uh, you know they regret getting away from the run or being forced away from the run in the 2020 season because they were digging out of holes uh, in every game, right? They fell behind in every game last year. So they felt that they weren't able to establish the run uh, the way that they wanted to. So I will be looking for precision, uh, really, in, in the way that they attack in the run game. Um, and it starts with, with getting their best five linemen up front. Uh, obviously, that, that unit is coached um, you know, by a new coach this year with Sharon Moore taking over for Ed Warner. So specifically for me, I definitely want to see the differences that we can pick up in uh, in execution, both uh, as we're watching the games and then what we see in the numbers when we start putting together the, the stats afterwards. So um, just being crisp and executing and making some, some big plays on early downs in the run game, um, if we see that, it would be a huge step forward uh, in comparison to last year. So one of the things I'm interested in is, so again, we heard Josh Gaddis talk about how, you know, we got away from the run more than he would have liked last season. But as you touched on, it really wasn't a choice. When you start getting behind, uh, you, you start losing parts of the playbook, right? So what's going to be interesting to me is how much philosophy they can change if the defense doesn't perform. And, you know, heading into this season, we have whole-scale changes on the defensive side of the ball. Mike McDonald spoke to the media recently and, and talked about how he was trying to bring the defense uh, that he had seen and learned in the NFL with the Baltimore Ravens to Michigan and that it really wasn't that complicated. And, you know, I, I sit here and part of that was music to my ears because if you watch football, you know, on a fundamental level, it's blocking, tackling. It's, it's, it's really simple, right? Now, the schemes could get complicated, but what it really comes down to is players performing. Players, you know, they always say Jimmys and Joes, not X's and O's. So I think the question I have is, you know, it may, it may be easier with NFL talent and I think the challenge that Don Brown ran into here at Michigan was in his early seasons, he had amazing NFL talent. And 
when you have NFL talent, you look really good. You can do amazing things. And not to disparage the players that he had later, but there was a, a difference in talent. So the question I have on the defensive side of the ball is, can Mike McDonald deploy a defense with college talent, especially specifically the talent that Michigan has, and will that talent allow the offense to be more balanced? Right. I think that that's a valid question. And for me, specifically on the defensive side of the ball, there, there's been a couple questions even in the, in the media availability directed at coaches and players about predictability uh, and, and what, how defensively or Michigan's defensive unit may have been predictable at times, especially in key moments uh, under Don Brown. Um, because he was uh, so deeply entrenched into some of his defensive philosophies. Um, we saw in 2020, we saw Don Brown, I think, really try to implement more uh, more scheme that, that wasn't necessarily his bread and butter, and that is really where it fell off the rails, right? Clearly, he had to adjust and and make a big change, and it didn't it didn't work. Um, and and that's it's really it's understandable because you can't just you know push a button and all of a sudden you're a you're a different team with different techniques and skills and and schemes. So um, now bringing in a whole new staff and having a, a full spring to try to implement change as opposed to last year with no spring to try to implement some change. I think this year's defensive unit is going to be better prepared to to implement some of the changes and to be less predictable, to be more, you know, the buzzword that you'll hear is multiple, which is, uh, you know, lining up in different ways to try to confuse the offense and not let the offense dictate, right? And, and I think what we saw, especially in big games against dynamic offenses, um, Ohio State's offense, uh, it's some of the old Indiana offenses, Penn State when they had uh, the big big play threats like KJ Hamler. Um, what they would do is they would use their formations in motion to get exactly the matchup that they wanted dynamically and get a, a, a very fast playmaker on the weakest coverage guy that Michigan had on the field. So they solved those puzzles, the down brown puzzle, in big moments and made big plays. And it goes, I mean, you can think of that 2017 Penn State game in Happy Valley where multiple times we had an inside linebacker trying to cover Saquon Barkley on a wheel route, right? You can think of the that same game where they shifted and went to the Wildcat formation and got a huge chunk, um, a long touchdown run by Saquon Barkley. Obviously, the 2018 Ohio State game, they knew exactly how to isolate their fastest slot receiver on our slowest cover corner and uh, tore us up across the middle with those crossing routes. So um, those problems were not necessarily high-level macro problems with Don Brown, in my opinion. What they were were uh, small chinks in his armor that uh, where he could his scheme could be manipulated by an offense to to really get their best playmaker against our worst playmaker at that given moment and it got exploited in big moments the 2019 penn state game 
as I mentioned, KJ Hamler, um, Don Brown and the defense had a great game that game. You know, they gave up 28 points and it was on four plays, you know, four big plays. And, uh, statistically it looks like a, a, a great defensive game, but they got exploited four times and, and Michigan couldn't answer the bell on offense. So this year, I think schematically having a different foundation under Mike McDonald will be more solid than the 2020 season because you really couldn't get less solid than the 2020 season. So they're going to be better. That's uh, encouraging. The question then becomes how much better can they be on defense? And um, it's going to be a, a process, right? We know that it's going to take time and they're going to continue lettering and learning on the coaching staff and the players. So what we see in the early season from the defense isn't necessarily going to be what we see later on in the season. So I think uh, a little bit of patience um, is in order also when we're talking about this year's defense. One of the things that strikes me as we're heading into this season is it seems like, well, no, it doesn't seem like my observations when watching uh, these, this team over the last few seasons is we always seem out of sync, right? Where when the offense, I really felt heading into last season that Josh Gaddis had kind of caught his stride as a play caller and had kind of established what kind of offense he wanted to run. And then it felt like the bottom fell out of the defense, right? And as you said, there are times statistically that the defense looked really good, but it would get exploited for a big play that would put the offense in a bad position. So what I'm really hoping for is, listen, you got to, again, you have a whole, a whole scale change on the defensive side of the ball and on the coaching. You have a new scheme coming in. What I'm hoping for that uh, the cake can rise at the same uh, level for both the offense and the defense. Like, I'm not expecting either group to come out firing on all cylinders um, or uh, running off of every, uh, every cell in the battery right out of the gate, right? But what I hope is that we're not struggling on defense eight games in, right? And, and I think that's, that's what's most interesting to me, whereas we didn't really have a full season. Um, you know, one of the things we also didn't have last year was you don't have a bowl, you don't have those extra practices. You had kind of an abbreviated spring, um, I, I think, you know, with, with people still being under COVID restrictions and not exactly being uh, normal, right? And you have all these changes on the on the staff side so i'm really wondering what that first game is going to be like um you're going to have a lot of players uh who are playing their first game you're going to have a lot of players who are who are going to be new starters getting substantial time and you're going to have a lot of coaches and as much as much experience as you have as a coach when you change positions it's different right when you are you know, you're you're facing a night game at Michigan Stadium. Uh, it's going to be a quite raucous crowd with uh, fans. You know, uh, having not been able to participate last season for the most part, it's going to be a wild environment. And um, the the thing that I wonder is uh, how much patience 
everyone will have if, if things don't start out well uh, in that first half, right? So again, I, I, I'm 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 really excited to see it. I, I like what we're hearing from Josh Gaddis. I like what we're hearing from Mike McDonald. One thing that was was really interesting is some of the offensive players have talked about how they have noticed changes on how the defense is playing them. Where for the last couple of seasons they would go out in a formation and and they knew what to expect and. They knew uh, what kind of coverages they were going to have to go against, and they've noticed things have changed. Things are, you know, and, and I think that was kind of, uh, um, you know, you talk about predict, you know, being be, being predictable. I think that was kind of a, uh, an observation, even by the own players, that the defense had had come kind of predictable. Um, the other interesting thing that that was that Mike McDonald talked about was. You know, they talked about his offensive philosophy, and one of the things that he he emphasized was, you know, it's all about respect. It's about when you head into the building. He talked about when he started with the Ravens as an as a as a analyst and an intern, right? That everyone knew who he was. They knew him by first name. They greeted him. He didn't feel like he was the lowest rung on the ladder. You know respect wise now he may have had the 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 least important job right but he's like listen you treat the janitors well you treat everybody well and i think um one of the things that will be interesting is the the vibe that i got from listening to him is that the defense was going to be more collaborative and i feel that um that may be one of the things that that i think the players are looking for I know that last season there was an undercurrent from some of the defensive players that, hey, what we're doing isn't working, and they were trying to give that feedback up, and, and the, the tone in the room was, this is what we're doing, you know, and, and your input isn't necessarily wanted. So um, it'll be interesting how that plays out on the field, you know, a, a more collaborative, respectful uh, environment. Yeah, there's been a clear... Um emphasis from Jim Harbaugh on on changing the culture right and I think you and I discussed this all the way back in the winter time when right after his contract negotiation had resolved and he came out with his vision for for how he wanted to handle this upcoming season in the cycle and, and as has been the case with uh with Jim Harbaugh um, his, his actions have tended to match his words. You know, I, I, I don't have any reason still to this point to, to not believe, you know, what he has said that he will do. He, he backs it up with what he, uh, he tries to do. And the, the key, obviously, for him as a coach and for us as Michigan fans is for him to start getting back to the, the levels of success that we expect from this program and that he expects from the program. So, um, that's I don't think that anybody has to remind uh, certainly Jim Harbaugh or this staff, you know, what the expectations are for the football program at Michigan. Uh, and I think that they are addressing the correct things to try to make that, um, you know, the most likely. And they they have to start with a strong foundation and uh, a team that is built on strong relationships amongst the players, between the players and the coaches, um, you know, amongst the coaches themselves, 
right? And then the support staff to your, to your point. So I, I think that their, their emphasis on that points to some of the cracks that, that were in the program, um, over the recent history. You know, sometimes Jim can be, um, may, maybe slow to see some of those, uh, foundation cracks you know he's you know he's his focus is is in some other places at times but he he certainly addressed them and has always acknowledged that it, it starts with him the buck stops with the the head football coach and we have never seen harbaugh shirk the his responsibility and uh he's been flexible and adaptable to uh to try to address those things and and everything that you're talking about I think is, is just another example of that. So I think that that is, um, you know, should be applauded, um, as a good thing. But again, you know, it's, success is also measured, uh, on game day, right? So there, there's a lot of other things that also have to happen and, uh, the proof will be in the pudding, so to speak. Absolutely. One other interesting change that I think embodies kind of the respect and the collaborative nature is Michigan announced that uh, they've made a change to the helmet sticker. Uh, I guess it would we call it a policy or procedure, right? Um, and, you know, to, uh, to some of the traditionalists, there's been a lot of heartburn over, do you do stickers? How do you get a sticker? What does a sticker mean? And again, it, it's kind of uh, one of the things that as fans, it's fun to kick around. So one of the changes that they've announced is that, um, so I think for most of, of the time in, in Michigan football history, stickers were given away for, for big plays, right? Like if you had an individual, um, a big play, uh, you know, a game turning event, something that, that the game would pivot on, you would get a big play sticker, right? So um what it were what it appears from the photos that have been released is that the stickers are now a combination of team achievements and individual achievements and so uh the thought being that you know you'll be able to look at a player's helmet and see not how not only how they've contributed to individual wins but things that are important to them uh achievements that they have done so, um, and again, I think it's interesting. Uh, what's your take um, on, on what you've seen from the new stickers, Clint? So my first, you know, from a high level thought on helmet stickers is that this is about coaches recognizing player achievements, right? This is, this is really directly um, to that relationship between coaches and players and, and, acknowledging some of uh some of the achievements of the players so for us as fans from the outside what we think about what it looks like or what it means right has very little bearing it's not the objective right they're not putting stickers on the helmets to make you and me happy (laughs) it's it's much more about directly acknowledging football achievements by the by the kids who, who matter the most so i think that you got to start with that. So, so anybody that is really uh, twisted over helmet stickers or no helmet stickers or what type of helmet stickers, I think that there's a, a, a misalignment of priority there. So I think personally shifting from 
um, kind of nameless or faceless to the outside achievements, like you said, just knowing that it had something to do with big plays over time and actually putting uh, different designs or different imagery on the stickers and giving it different meaning and creating some team uh, awards and individual awards and making it kind of a career achievement list is another thing that I've read. I think those are great things. I think anything that you do that strengthens the bond between your coaching staff and your players and, and makes them feel recognized for their role in, in accomplishing something as a team or uh, individually accomplishing something or stepping up in a big moment is, is a good thing, right? And, and you and I have talked about it many times um, from a positive side and from a, a negative side that Michigan's biggest moments right now, um, we need players to step up and make big plays in those moments. And how do you do that it is, is by positively reinforcing the, the kids that actually have to do it in the moment so that they, they build that muscle memory and the confidence to, to step up and do that in, in tough scenarios. So um, helmet stickers aren't going to make us make big plays in the key moments, right? Helmet stickers aren't going to have any impact at all uh, on a Saturday. But systematically building confidence and, and building a strong relationship between your coaching staff and your players over time does make a difference. So if helmet stickers are one uh, piece of that puzzle, then then it's great. And uh, again, this is just a small thing that hopefully is is really helping to change the culture in uh, in a positive direction. And I would point to it again as a, a clear example where Harbaugh took some feedback from likely from some new coaches to, to his staff, maybe some of the coaches that have more experience with high school players and their reactions to helmet stickers and feedback from the outside and uh, is trying something new. And I'm sure that, uh, that they're going to get the, the most mileage out of it in terms of having fun with it with the kids. So I have to say that I've kind of, uh, I've, I've gone on a journey with the stickers, right? When I first saw, when I first saw them, I kind of went meh, right? And, um, my initial response, and I want to, you know, make sure I, I, you know, clear on that. My initial response was not positive, right? And, you know, again, my thing is what I really want to see is a Big Ten championship sticker. What I really want to see is what is the sticker like when we make the playoffs? But as I started to really look at each individual sticker, right? And and again, it, it, it's it's funny because you kind of like you have your first brush, and then you you kind of you know I think as an older person you you kind of try to understand what's behind it, right? And I'm looking at the sticker, and one of the uh, stickers they have on the um, on the photo that was released was uh, an equality sticker, right? And I started thinking about it, and not only is it a sticker, it's it's one of the biggest ones, right? And I thought, you know. This is a way for players to express themselves. This is a way for players to say, hey, we recognize larger issues and, and we're with you, right? And as you said, 
it's for the coaches to acknowledge that there are other issues for the players, right? So, again, I, I kind of went on a journey. My first thing was, eh, you know, you're you're rearranging uh, deck chairs on the Titanic, right? Is one of my fa- phrases. Like, hey, you know, winning takes care of a lot. But, you know, part of changing the culture is acknowledging that you're part of a larger conversation. And as I look at the, at the stickers, um, you know, and, and I'll tell you, um, so I'm looking at these stickers. There's the equality sticker, right? There's the, um, you know, there are stickers for when players lettered, which is important. There's also a sticker for, uh, you know, did you participate in a TED Talk? And I've, uh, you know, participated in the U of M TED Talks. They're amazing events, right? So what I like is that um, I think what I see is that the team taking its place not only on the playing field, but as a larger part of society acknowledging that they have a role in raising awareness and that each player has a, has a role in, in you know, showing what, what they're aware of and what, they're import, what they care about. So, I, again, if, if this is symbolic of a new culture, I'm all for it. I'm interested to see, you know, what different stickers come out, right? And, uh, you know, individually how players, how, how players express themselves. So, again, my initial take was, was uh, I don't want to say real negative, but I didn't, I don't think I cared one way or the other. And the more I looked at it, the more I, I really warmed to it, and, and the more I think it's a really great idea. And as you said, when you hear the players talk about it, and the coaches talk about what they're trying to do. Um, I, I think that, you know, one of the things in, in that we're seeing, and, and this kind of rolls into the, the to the name image likeness discussion, is that players aren't just interchangeable parts, right? They're individuals. And it'll be interesting to see how uh, name image likeness changes the way players express themselves, changes the way coaches deal with it. And, and I think that Coach Harbaugh is is on the right side of history to be acknowledging uh, these changes. And again, you know, there, there's a lot of emotion behind the iconic Michigan helmet. So anytime there's a change, I think uh, some people are going to have a visceral response. But, you know, that helmet has to move forward. That helmet has to be able to change with the players and and change to, uh, you know, continue to attract players to be successful. And I hope that this is a, a strong part of that. Yeah, you. I think you said it right, is that um, not only acknowledging, you know, what a, what a player does between the lines, but also uh, acknowledging and embracing the role that, that – these kids play as leaders within their peer groups um, on a college campus, and then you know as they move forward into into adulthood. So it's you know it's still uh, a big part of uh, the coaching staff's role, at least as as we've seen them embrace it, is being uh, teachers and uh, and developers of of young men as they get prepared to. You know, as these kids move into their their young adulthood and, and into their professional lives, whether it's you know professional football or or after professional football, or also acknowledging the kids that may never play 
uh, a down of organized football again after college. So that's a it's a wide spectrum of uh, of kids all uh, who who need to be acknowledged um, for the effort that they put in from top to bottom in order to keep that uh, that strong culture that we're talking about. So I, I think that you you, you really hit uh, hit a pretty strong point there. So talking about name name image license. Uh, or name, image, likeness. Sorry about that. So, you know, word broke this week that um, BYU football has made a deal so that NIL will pay tuition for walk-on players. I think that's amazing. I think it's a great use of the NIL mechanism that is quickly evolving. Um, One question I have, though, is so okay the good news is if this is a way for the lesser powers to help fund their program and fund opportunity for athletes that's great one thing i wonder is you know as the uh the larger schools uh and and michigan is definitely part of them um is this going to open up a way of uh Increasing opportunities, increasing ways for players to participate um, and have a negative effect on on programs further down the chain, right? So one of the ways, you know, and, and you'd hear these stories talk about how um, in the 70s and, you know, 60s, 70s, and I think even into the 80s, um, players would choose to go to a larger program and, and, and be further down the chain just to have that experience, right? Whereas perhaps they could have been a starter, you know, at a at a at a different school, a smaller school, but they would make the choice for academics or for culture or for because they always wanted to play for a Michigan or an Alabama or Ohio State. Um, and then scholarships limits came in, and uh, they uh, would, you know, as college got more and more expensive. Uh, the talent started redistributing itself. So when I see this um, use of NIL, I'm wondering, is this going to help? uh, Will this lead to the larger schools beginning to stockpile talent again? Well, I, I think that that structure already exists. So I think that you're right, that there's going to be an imbalance, um, that the NIL opportunities are going to be top heavy and the ramifications of that will also draw, you know, additional resources and talent to, to the top end large, you know, power schools of which, you know, Michigan is certainly one. So your, your, your concern I think is, is accurate and correct, but I don't know that it's just, you know, opportunities, um, and drawing talent away from the smaller schools, I think it's much it's much deeper than that. Um, but there there are still there are still way more questions than answers, and, and we talked about this a couple podcasts ago. Um, the, the the plane is certainly being built in the in midair here in terms of how schools and kids and the NCAA as an organization and conferences and all of these other stakeholders are going to 
uh, utilize NIL or manage NIL or both at the same time. All right. And I, I, my attention was kind of snagged earlier this week because uh, Hunter Dickinson from the basketball program was on a podcast with uh, Stu Douglas and, and had some, you know, some, some real negativity to, uh, to express about the way that the university is managing the NIL program, you know, and I, I can understand that for sure. And I think that that's more about his own individual expectations for what this particular season was going to be for him from an NIL standpoint as opposed to any kind of systemic shortfall, because we're talking about pretty complex uh, puzzles that that have to be solved here, and it's still very early in the process, right? The court decision that kind of kicked off all of this was still in July of this year. You know, we're we're just more than a month removed from you know the the starter's pistol going off on this race, so. Um, not everybody's got it figured out, you know, brand management and uh, trademark licensing and all of that really fun marketing sports business stuff uh, is, is it can be pretty complex with what's already been established and and how it's going to evolve quickly here over time. So, again, I think what we want to see is for Michigan to try to be on the leading edge of setting themselves up to be advocates for their athletes um, and, and provide opportunities and maybe level the playing field in relation to some of the other power programs. But the, the entire NIL concept and the ability to market yourself and brand yourself as an individual, as an athlete, I think was always going to be tilted towards the, uh, the high-end programs just because the exposure and the publicity that those programs get is already um, so top-heavy. So um, I think your concern is legitimate and is real, but I think all the, the entire market dynamic really is, um, is really where we would want to start to talk about, you know, how is this going to impact everything in terms of redistribution. So it's interesting because um – Listen, I, I'm the first one, and, and I think historically, you know, I have a pretty good track record. I'm the first person to criticize the athletic department. Um, I'm, I'm willing to give them a temporary pass on this one, right, in that this environment is so dynamic, and I understand um, Hunter Dickinson's frustration. I agree with it, but also understand that you know, this is going to evolve over the next year or two, right? If this was year five and Michigan was trailing, I, I would be I would be hypercritical, right? Um, but again, I, I think it's uh, you know the cake is still rising, and this isn't this isn't me giving a pass to the athletic department. That's not what I'm doing. What I'm saying is is that there are a lot of different uh, pieces moving here, and unfortunately. Um, you know, the players who are really going to benefit from this are two or three years down the road when this all gets formalized, right? Um, this is kind of the Wild West of NIL right now, right? And it's the legal Wild West, but again, we're going to see new ideas, we're going to see new approaches, and I fully expect, 
okay? And that Michigan will be, okay, Michigan is particularly positioned to maximize opportunities for their players in the NIL arena, okay? Um, In a lot of different ways, okay? When you look at the alumni base, when you look at the the different entrepreneurial things that are at the university, um, it it will happen. We don't know how it's going to happen. If if this was two or three years from now and we hadn't seen something more substantial, um, I would be sorely disappointed. Um, but again, it's still in transition right now. Things don't happen overnight, and uh, I, I know that that certain people are going to call me an apologist for that. But that's just the reality. These these things are complicated, and and I do hope it happens sooner and faster rather than later. Because, again, you and I are, are on the same page. We've talked about this. The players need to participate in the revenues that the NCAA is creating and the university is, is uh, you know, reaping. There's no doubt about that. And I think when it's all said and done in the next couple years, um, there's going to be a huge advantage to an athlete attending the University of Michigan versus um, pretty much any other university in the country. So um, looking forward to that, looking to seeing how that happens, and, and definitely, uh, you know, go blue as an alum. I, I'm, I'm excited to see how Michigan will be able to leverage this uh, to not only uh, help the athletes that come, but also be successful in every area, in every sport. And and one other point, again, specific to the football program, from what we've seen in terms of public-facing information that has come out, um, you know, Jim Harbaugh brought um, one of the regents, you know, Jordan Acker, who I think is the chairman or, or president, whatever they call the leader of the, the regents of the university, um, to, uh, to speak to the team after a practice, and, and they... They did address it directly and asked if, if specifically um, the university was, was going to allow the athletes to use the Block M logo in relation to NIL opportunities, which is you know part of the big contention that Hunter Dickinson was, um, was frustrated with. And um, it was clear that you know the, the coaches and, and Jim Harbaugh specifically were advocating for the players to be able to do that. And Jordan Acker's immediate response was absolutely, I'm going to work on trying to get that to happen. So it's not uh, necessarily that um, that the university powers that be are trying to remove that opportunity. It's just not happening as fast as some of the players may have wanted, of course, um, which, which is understandable. You know, a, a player like Hunter Dickinson probably only has – uh, you know, another another year or so on campus where this even applies to him, to your point. So um, if it takes a long time, then, then he misses that opportunity. So his frustration, again, is understandable, but shouldn't be necessarily reflective of how the university is handling this five or six weeks after everything got kicked off here. Absolutely. So, and you know, you and I will continue to talk about this. We will continue to track this. This is not an issue that if it becomes uncomfortable for the university, it's not one that we will not address. We will continue to track and and, um, and monitor the situation and, and look forward to, to how things evolve. Um, 
So another big change, and, and you know, Clint, NIL is, is something um, that I think, you know, in the next couple years, it has the potential to transform um, big-time athletics. The other thing that's transforming right now is, uh, you know, what's going to happen with the playoffs and how conferences are going to align and how things are going to change. So, um, you know, we've talked about this over the last couple podcasts. Um, the latest rumor is that the Big Ten, the Pac-12, and the ACC are discussing some kind of alliance um, to address scheduling, but most importantly, to form a voting block to balance, counterbalance, I would say, um, the power of the SEC and of, you know, I'm going to take a shot at Notre Dame since they're always treated like a special unicorn. Um, so it, it, to me, and it's funny because you and I were talking offline about you had suggested at one point, well, the Big Ten could align with the ACC. And I was like, no, the Big Ten should align with the Pac-12. And it appears that uh, the, best of our ide- our, the best of our ideas are coming together. Um, what do you think about these rumors and this speculation? Well, first, I, I think you have to start with, let's, let's start chronologically, right? In, and chronologically, this offseason, the first big news domino to fall in college football was talk of playoff expansion and the we as fans had discussed it right especially uh, a team or a program like Michigan that has been on that that next tier in some cases that you know if there was an 18 playoff they would have made it wish we would have made it and some people want to keep it at four and that whole conversation it got more real uh early in the offseason because there was a a legitimate conversation about um some framework of how a 12-team playoff would work and you and i talked about wow they jumped the eight team and went right to the 12 team that's interesting and 12 team comes up with some interesting things and we talked about first round buys right and now we find out um the next domino to drop after the playoff expansion conversation is Texas and Oklahoma are, are, are laying the groundwork and paving the way for a shift from the Big 12 to the SEC. And obviously, not only does that change um, the, the numbers game of, of just how you keep a conference together with the number of teams that you have, uh, but also those are two dynamic power programs Oklahoma has been to the football playoff multiple times in the recent history and Texas is, is a lot like Michigan that carries a lot of weight from a historical perspective as a football program and success as well as a lot of economic weight with their alumni base and with the revenue that is commanded by their program and television network so there's a lot of stuff going on And when you slide Texas and Oklahoma over to the SEC, huh, okay, that's that's big news, right? And everybody correctly says, man, this is – it's going to be crazy. Snatch up as many teams as you can because it's just about getting to a big number of teams. And I think what we are seeing now, 
as the Big Ten and the ACC and the Pac-12 are starting to talk about how to create a political voting block that would be able to counteract the SEC is that you, you can count or you can start connecting dots between um, the SEC commissioner, Sankey, who's involved in the playoff expansion conversation from early in the cycle, while, and working with the Big 12 commissioner to, uh, to work on that playoff expansion, while at the same time, clearly behind the scenes, he's courting the two biggest programs in the Big 12 and helping them lay the groundwork to slide over to his conference. So acknowledging the, the conference champions are going to get in and increased opportunities for wild cards, you can see that, that Sankey had information in his pocket that says, yeah, I want more wild card spots because I'm going to have more power programs in the SEC to take those wild card spots, right? So he was clearly working uh, uh, multiple fronts to to increase his leverage specific to the playoff, right? And then even in a grander scale, right, we start talking about media rights and how the television contracts are all coming up with the different conferences and how the television conference or the television contracts are established with the football playoff also. And, and ESPN starts to become a, a major player and political force and economic force in this whole conversation. So there's a lot happening behind the scenes that is not necessarily about which basketball team do you want to see on the schedule? Which football team do you want to see on the schedule traveling to the West Coast for a football game as opposed to traveling to Miami for a game? That's stuff that you and I can, uh, you know, kick around and have fun with. But right now, there is some titanic shifting going on with how this sport is going to reorganize itself or how the powers that be fight each other for power over this sport and it's this is gonna this entire cycle as it comes out uh obviously this year and the next couple years is going to have long long term effects on what this sport is and how it works uh for for the long term i mean we're, we're talking about historic dynamic shifts that are happening at the foundation of college football right now no doubt. And, and Clint, I, I want to um, I, I'm going to continue to beat the drum for the Big Ten Pac-12 alignment, alliance or alignment. OK, I look to. So when I when I hear about Texas joining the SEC, right, it's like, oh, you know, it, it's funny. I kind of view this almost like uh, like we would view a political election. Right. Oh, Texas has a lot of electoral votes. Man, you want to lock down Texas. You know, one of the biggest things out there is the California market, and specifically the L.A. market. And if you look at what the NFL has done, okay, the NFL kept pitching for L.A. and kept failing, right? But they keep going back. And the reason is how big the market potential is, right? They didn't give up. And when I look at the opportunity to take the Big Ten from coast to coast, right, from East Coast to West Coast, to blanket every time zone, to, to capture um, 
I would say the most elite universities in the research area, the PAC-12 makes the most sense, right? And I think um, right now, listen, the SEC is the big dog, and, and I'm, I, I'm not going to dispute that. But if you're going to counter that, historically, Michigan and the Big Ten have had a, a relationship with the Pac-12. Um, I'm one of the people who fondly remember going to the Rose Bowl and, and uh, looking forward to that trip every year when Michigan was more successful. And, and you know, there is a huge group of Big Ten alumni out in California. There's a huge amount of potential NIL money out in California. And I would say that, you know, you talk about what's happening behind the scenes. The people who are looking down the road are focusing on California, just the way NFL is, okay? And if if the Big Ten, if the people running the Big Ten are, are intelligent and have foresight and, and I question that and what we've seen in the last year with how they dealt with COVID. But, you know, you got to give the Big Ten credit. They had the foresight to build the Big Ten network, okay? And if there's any of that strategic vision left, the play here is the Pac-12. And understand that it has to go both ways, right? The Pac-12 has to see themselves you know, who would be the best partner for them? And I think that that the Pac-12 is, is in play right now, right? Um, the same way that if the SEC wanted to cement themselves in, I would skip right over Texas, okay? I would go right to the West Coast. Um, and so it's going to be interesting for me, uh, you know, for us the next couple of years. I think NIL, I think alignment. I think that five years from now, you and I will be talking about some type of super conferences, some kind of super alignment. So the question is, um, you know, again, the traditionalists out there um, will say, well, I want it to be, I don't want more teams in the Big Ten. I want less. I want it to go back to the way it used to be. Well, that's not going to happen, okay? So the question is, if change is coming, and it is, because change always comes, how do you manage it in the best way for not only the college athletes to increase their opportunities, but to have a a more sustainable product and uh, one that hopefully benefits everyone? And and I keep coming back to, um, man, Pac-12, Pac-12, Big Ten, some kind of alignment. If ACC wants to come, great. That's awesome. Um, you know, and, and I keep I keep coming back to screw Notre Dame. I'm so tired of Notre Dame. Um, it would have made perfect, you know, it would make perfect. Everybody in the world thinks it makes sense for the Big Ten and the Notre Dame to have some kind of alignment, except for Notre Dame. And, and again, they have a real sweet deal. They have continued to be treated like a special little unicorn by by the by the networks and and the NCAA, if I'm Notre Dame, I understand why I don't align. They they have a very special special place. Okay, so I think if we need to move on, the Big Ten needs to move on, and um, the way to get a super conference and the way to maximize revenues and NIL opportunities at, for everyone 
is is to go coast to coast, go bigger, go home, and and just uh, you know realign and and man, let's let's create the most amazing product, the most amazing sporting spectacle on the planet. That's what I would like to see. Well, first let me say that I don't dispute or, or dislike really anything that you're saying or describing in terms of your vision, right? But I, I'll, I'll kind of try to summarize where I'm at in this titanic shift and conference realignment and, and television rights and, and et cetera. Here are the things, in my mind, these are the major shifts that are in play and i have more questions than answers so i don't i I don't want to portend that i know um what's going to happen or how i think it's going to happen i can just tell you what uh what i see and what i hope will happen um but here here are the major drivers in the last round of major conference realignment uh really the big 10 and jim delaney jumped into the driver's seat um by snagging uh Nebraska, who was trying to get away from the Big 12, where they were being suffocated by uh, Texas and Oklahoma, ironically enough, and then also snagged uh, Rutgers and Maryland to clearly branch out to the East Coast and uh, reach out some to some television markets, all under the umbrella of creating the Big Ten Network and turning that into a revenue monster. So... Um, like any other monster, there are pros and cons that come with that. The pros obviously being, uh, the, the Big Ten Conference is still, I think, per school, the richest conference in terms of what they're getting from their TV deal, right? So Jim Delaney brings in a ton of cash by making those strategic moves and also had put himself into the driver's seat by, by being on the leading edge there in that last, uh, round. Everybody else, also makes moves and adjusts and tries to establish and copy what the Big Ten did, but they don't get the same impact because they're not the first ones. Well, if this is a new cycle of alignment, as we're saying, and and it is, right, who jumped into the driver's seat clearly, strategically, is Greg Sankey, the commissioner of the SEC, right? So in this round, he is in the driver's seat and everybody else is trying to figure out where he's trying to drive to, right? That's the first question that I don't know that anybody publicly knows outside of Greg Sankey and his inner circle. So where, what is the SEC trying to accomplish with the strategic moves that they are making, right? The next thing, then, is NIL and uh, COVID in 2020 totally blew up any semblance of what we would consider traditional college football, long-term scheduling and operations and, and creating a season, right? That if you remember our conversations from a year ago at this time, we didn't know if there was going to be a season at all. We knew everybody wanted to play the games because fans like to play the games and athletic directors needed the revenue and it was absolute chaos. But what we all can agree on is that the NCAA had zero, zero power to act as a governing body or a leading body for all of these football programs. 
the NCAA has almost no say in what is going to happen in the coming five years. Let's let's just use a five-year window. The NCAA as an organization is not driving the bus right now, right? Again, specifically, I would say the SEC commissioner is driving the bus, and the bus is media revenue. And I say media revenue not only because the last round was about creating your own network, but now the other big dynamic is streaming platforms and the emergence of Netflix-style subscription platforms that in the next five years, I believe, are going to be really driving the revenue between uh, and creating this, let's call it, college football content. So if that's where the market is going in media and entertainment to these subscription platforms for streaming and not necessarily cable television contracts, then the commissioners right now are elbowing each other trying to be driving the bus when the first big college football streaming platform gets created and commissioned and who's managing that dollar amount and remember the national or the the national championship the college football playoff as an entity is not an ncaa championship the college football playoff organization has its own board and its own uh, leadership and has signed its own television contract, which is also coming up to be negotiated. And ESPN, as a media network, is really deeply tied to the SEC and the SEC network and also is deeply tied to the college football playoff contract. So as media and our consumption of college football through our eyeballs shifts from in-person to television and then from now from television to streaming platforms, these are the dynamics that are going to determine what happens in the next five years. I don't know what's going to happen, but the stories that we see in the media that are about television contracts and streaming platforms and alliances that create uh, college football content to be consumed over the long haul and how the championships align to that as those questions get answered then the picture will start to come into focus and we'll be able to speak more intelligently about what's coming but right now it's it's really as close to a a blank slate when you try to try to guess what college football is going to look like in five years there's there are very few pillars that we can say for sure that will exist as an institution, whether it's the playoff, whether it's conferences in general, whether it's uh, how we consume the the games uh, as, as fans and as consumers, all of those things at least have some semblance of a question mark on them right now. So if, uh, if, if somebody's still listening to this and is interested in trying to understand it, those are the types of questions that need to be answered before we know anything about how Michigan plays a role in this. And those are the things we'll definitely be tracking as things change. And, and I agree with you um, about everything you said. And the biggest thing I agree with is that we're going to see tons of change over the next couple of years. So 
That's going to do it for this edition of the UMGoBlue.com podcast. This is Phil Callahan along with Clint Derringer. Go Blue. Thank you for listening to the UMGoBlue.com podcast. All rights reserved. Search for UMGoBlue.com on iTunes. Go Blue.